Turn again then to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And looking particularly at the first 11 verses. This morning as we looked at the end of chapter 4, we could summarize that as being the comfort which we derive from the second coming of Christ. And here as we come into chapter 5, we could summarize it by being the duty which the second coming of Christ requires of us. The day of the Lord is the theme. It is the event that Paul has here in focus. We see that particularly in verse 2. The day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now it's a fairly obvious point, but of course the day of the Lord is a totally different concept from the Lord's day. This is the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath. It's a regularly recurring pattern in our weeks. Every seven days we meet for worship and we rest from all labor. The day of the Lord is something in the future. Something that we look forward to. Something that is yet to come. A time when the Lord intervenes in the world. It's an Old Testament concept that's brought out here into the New Testament. The Old Testament prophets often spoke of the day of the Lord. A day of visitation. A day when the Lord comes down to earth to deal in justice and in mercy. The two go together. I think predominantly the prophets have those brushstrokes of the justice, the judgment, the vengeance, the terror and the wrath. But they never leave us totally uh, like that with those dark colours. They also bring out the lighter colours. Salvation for a remnant. Those who are true believers. Those who have uh, repented of any idolatry and are seeking the Lord. They are saved. They will be protected in this great day of the Lord's wrath. And throughout the scripture, in a sense, there are many different days of the Lord. You could think of the destruction uh, of Jerusalem as being one such example. A day of the Lord's wrath against his own city. We can think of the destruction of Jerusalem, which comes uh, after the writing here of Thessalonians, the destruction in AD 70, as another time when the Lord intervenes to bring judgment. But all these events are pointing forward to the greater event, the day of the Lord when Christ himself returns in his second coming. When we think of the Old Testament and how it speaks of these events, in one sense it has in mind the destruction of Jerusalem that's forthcoming. But they are looking forward and are continuing to instruct us in the 21st century of things yet to come. And of all the prophets, I think Joel and Zephaniah particularly speak of the day of the Lord. Uh, I think just the, the sense that these two books are small, they are minor prophets, and yet over and over again this phrase is used. And so it's, there's a density to these books in their focus on the day of the Lord. Joel speaks of the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Zephaniah shows in his account in chapter 1 that the day of the Lord is far greater than the flood. 
He says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Of course, in the day of the flood, the fish in the sea were unaffected by it. The more the waters rose in the earth, the more the fish thrived. But this day of the Lord is more destructive even than that. And particularly, Zephaniah sees that this destruction is against Judah and against Jerusalem. Because these places have rebelled against their Lord. They've turned aside from the worship of the true God to idolatry. And such must be punished. He describes it as a day of wrath. A day of trouble and darkness. Distress. A day of devastation and desolation. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and alarm against fortified cities and against the high towers. Nothing will be able to withstand the Lord in the day of his wrath. You think about the safest place on the earth. You think about the nuclear bunkers that there are. Uh, That if, if something happened, a nuclear holocaust were to occur, the presidents and the prime ministers would be down in their bunkers and seeking to... Form together a semblance of government in the world. But nothing can withstand the blast of the Lord's fury in this his day. He will bring judgment. Judgment against sin and rebellion. But as I said earlier, where there is judgment, there is also mercy. Mercy towards the remnant. Those who will be saved and preserved. And delivered even in that day. It's interesting to think of this very much an Old Testament concept coming forward into the New Testament. Uh, To think of it in the Old Testament, it is the day of Jehovah. If you were to look at it, it would be Lord in capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The day of Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on the different ways in which people feel it should be pronounced. But here, as we see in verse 2, it's the day of the Lord. It doesn't have the capital letters in the same way, but it's focused on the day of Christ. This day is particularly entrusted into his hands. Although in the Old Testament it was seen as the day of Jehovah, now we see particularly it's delegated into the hands of Christ. I think those two things we see there. First, that Jesus is divine. He is Jehovah. This is his day. The Jehovah's Witnesses might come to your door. And one of the things that they believe is that Jesus is not Jehovah. That Jesus, the Son, is not equal to the Father. In their view, Jesus was the first created thing. He is the greatest of all created things. Through Jesus, all other things have been created, but Jesus is still lower than the Father and is not equal to him. That's their view. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will come to your door and they'll want to talk about anything. Uh, I've said this to you before. They try to make themselves out to be holding similar views to Christians. Uh, I've had them come to the door and want to talk to me about my views of smoking and things like this. They think that through these issues, they can get you to 
to, to have a common ground with them. As if they can use this to bring you onto their side. But at the heart, don't forget that this cult denies the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we see that Jesus is divine. Because the day of Jehovah is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes to judge. But also we see that it's particularly delegated into his hands. Jesus says in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, who is the mediator, Jesus, through whom we are saved from sin, Jesus, who is despised and rejected by many people, is the one in particular that comes in judgment and in deliverance. The Son, who has been instrumental in our salvation, is the one that that owns this day. He has a special claim to it because everything has been delegated to him. I want us to think about two questions as we think about this day of the Lord. First of all, to ask when will this day be? And secondly, how can we prepare for it? So first of all, when will this day of the Lord come? There have been many people throughout the history of the church who have been doomsday predictors. They use the scriptures, particularly the numbers contained in the scriptures, and they try to pinpoint an exact date when events are going to happen. I think most notoriously in recent years, uh, the name Harold Camping, I'm not sure if you remember that name, but he was someone that predicted that he was predicting the rapture when in his view, a false view, when those who are believers on earth will be taken up, uh, removed from the earth, uh, and those who are unbelievers remain behind. Now, Harold Camping was a, he was a Christian radio broadcaster in America. He had a, a large and a sizable audience and many followers who were devoted to his teaching. And he predicted the 6th of September, 1994, as the, the exact date when these things would happen. Of course, we're well past that time now. What did he do when his date was proven to be wrong? He simply adjusted it. He came up with a new date. And again was found to be wrong. And again and again and again. You see, this is the thing. People guess the date of these things and they get it wrong. Matthew 24 says, but of that day and hour No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Later on in 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes again to this church because they've swung almost to the other side. Instead of them thinking, what date will Jesus come? They're they're thinking Jesus has already come. The end has already come and therefore we can live as we please. We don't need to go out to work. We don't need to provide for ourselves. We live as if the consummation is already here. Feast, eat, drink, and be merry. And Paul corrects that view particularly because he shows them that there are certain signposts along the way to the second coming of Christ. Things that must be accomplished first. Now if you and I were to 
we were to try to go on a trip to London, for example, and to drive there, you know that there's no sign here for London for you to follow. You have to, you have, to have an idea of the, the towns and cities that come before London. You, you think, okay, well, first we follow signs to Inverness and then Glasgow and down into to Manchester, and then eventually we might find a sign pointing us towards London. There are things, places that come first. And so it is with the second coming of Christ. There are things, events, signposts along the way that must come first. Paul specifies those in 2 Thessalonians 2. He, he talks about first must come the great apostasy. Now what, what is a great apostasy? It's not simply that there's general wickedness on the earth. That's always been true. In the days of Noah there was great wickedness on earth. There's always been a sizable majority even of those who are wicked. But an apostasy is a turning away, a turning back, a falling away. To have been once a professed Christian and then to turn back and go back to the world. That is what an apostate is. And and Paul describes, that's the first signpost, a a great apostasy, a sizable turning away from the faith to the world. He also mentions another signpost, the revealing of the man of sin, that is the Antichrist. And not only the revealing of the man of sin, but his destruction through the breath of Christ's mouth. Now we've spoken about this man of sin before. And of course in our system we believe this to be the office of the papacy. And the Antichrist, this man of sin, is still very much at large today. 1.3 billion baptised Roman Catholics are still under the sway of that false teaching. They have a hold, particularly in other countries, a very strong hold over governments, over political leaders. They can influence public policy. And even in our own land, where there are Roman Catholic schools, and they have a a great sway over young people's minds. (coughs) But the Bible predicts, promises, That the man of sin must be destroyed through the breath of Christ's mouth and the brightness of his appearance. Particularly, uh, I think, through the gospel preaching. These are things that come first. These are signposts along the way before this second coming of Christ. And so we're not to be unsettled as the Thessalonians were and think that Jesus has already come and we're already in the consummation. No, there's an order to these things. But even believing those things, the second coming of Christ will still be sudden. And it will take everyone who is still alive on earth by surprise. We're told here um, in verse 2 that it comes as a thief in the night. I don't know if you've ever had your house burgled. But no thief ever writes you a letter or calls you up and says, I'm coming to your house tonight. That's totally against the point. They come at night under the cover of darkness to take you by surprise. And so that they can uh, make off with more of your possessions. And so it will be at the second coming. It will take all by surprise. 
There's no warning uh, the, the day before. Are you, are you ready for the coming of Christ? In fact, it will be like this in verse 3. People are saying peace and safety. That is, there is complacency on earth. They think all things are well. They think nothing can touch them. They are safe and no one's going to do anything towards them. This is, I think, expressed quite well in Zephaniah 1 and verse 12. The Lord will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. I think that's the attitude of of many people in, in our own island here. It's not the attitude of the atheist. The atheist doesn't believe in God. The atheist dismisses all thoughts of God. But there are people who have been brought up in the church, who have an idea of God, who who have some sense of a belief in God, but they think he will do no good nor evil to them. He won't bless and he won't curse. He'll just leave us alone. Leave us to ourselves. In other words, he won't punish us. They're saying peace and safety. It's very much like those false preachers who preach peace, peace, when there is no peace. There can be no peace for the unrighteous, no peace for the wicked. They are, they are dead in trespasses and sins. They are so severely plagued in their heart with sin. They need a remedy. They need salvation. There's no peace because they're at war with God. They need reconciliation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet they are complacent and believe that God will do nothing to them. Day by day they sing. They accrue more and more debts to the Lord. And they're almost daring him to do his worst. But it tells us here that sudden destruction comes. Look at verse 3. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. What a fate for the wicked. To be so self-assured and so self-confident. Self-righteous. Peace and safety. And then destruction. Just as labour pains upon a pregnant woman. Now, of course, labour pains are somewhat expected. But you never know the exact date. You're, you're given a due date. But the baby doesn't arrive necessarily on that due date. It's a rough guide and approximation. But there comes a day that you wake up. It's all different. The baby will come. And there can be no reversing it. There can be no stopping the birth pangs. It's on its way. And it will come. And that's the idea here. Sudden destruction. There will be no reversal in that day. Those who have been complacent cannot stop the wrath of God that will pour out upon them. Because it tells us in verse 3, and they shall not escape. And that word not there is intensive in the Greek. It's a strong not. They shall certainly not escape. Dear friends, if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, take this verse to your heart. You shall not escape. You shall certainly not escape. There is no escape for those outside of Christ. 
There's no way to weasel your way out in the end. Even if people are trying to tell you peace and safety, even if your own heart is saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes and you won't escape from it. Now is the time to escape from such destruction. And so Paul, here writing to the Thessalonians about this question of when the day of the Lord will come. There is no date that is known to us or can be known to us. It's known to the Father in heaven. We should be studying, however, the signs of the times. The times and the seasons. There used to be a, an annual report to the Synod in the RP Church. I'm not sure if other denominations did this, but certainly here they did. And in America, I think they still do this. A report called The Signs of the Times. And it was taking a very broad look at the world and the events of the world in that year. And of course, one of the things that was most of interest was what was happening in Roman Catholicism. If we believe that that is, uh, the Pope is the Antichrist. We are looking for the downfall of the papacy, the destruction of the man of sin. And so we are interested in seeing the progress of such things in the world. So we should be interested in the signs of the times, the signposts along the way. But as soon as someone puts a date down, as soon as someone tries to pin it down to a particular time, we know they will be wrong because the Lord will come as a thief in the night when you least expect it, suddenly, and it will bring destruction for all those who are outside of Christ. So that's the the first question. When will the day of the Lord come? But secondly, how should we prepare for it? Of course, the very fact that we don't know when that day will come should make us prepare for it today. Because when it could come any moment, and we must be ready. Paul here makes the contrast between two groups of people. The sons of the day and the sons of night. The sons of light and the sons of darkness. And his point here is, if you are a son or a daughter, you're a son of the day, Live as a son of the day. Live up to what you are. This phrase, sons of, we see it there in verse 5. This is a particularly Hebrew way of expressing uh, an idea. Um, Son of the day means that day characterizes the person. Think of how Jesus calls uh, James and John the sons of thunder. By saying that, he's not making any comment about their father. You know, you would say you're a son of a certain person. But sons of thunder isn't referring to Zebedee, their father. It's referring to a characteristic of them. There's something thunderous about them, James and John. This is a characteristic that comes out. Or take Second Thessalonians 2, we referred to it earlier. The man of sin is called the son of perdition. That's a Hebrew way of expressing a predominant feature of that man. Perdition. Condemnation. That he is damned to utter destruction and there will be no mercy and no hope for him. 
So here we have the idea of sons of light and sons of darkness. This is what characterizes these people. Those who have been born again by God's Spirit are enlightened and therefore are sons of light, sons of the day. Those who are still in the darkness of sin, those who are still unregenerate, are sons of the night. Which one are you? If you're a son of the day, you are to live as a son of the day. And that is how you prepare for the coming of Christ. He shows us here, first of all, how the sons of the night behave themselves. Uh, They are those, verses 6 and 7, who sleep and who get drunk. Isn't that what people do at night time? They sleep and many get drunk. The idea here is one of carelessness, sleeping, complacency, and not being alert, not concerned for their future or their well-being, just sleeping it away. But then also the sinfulness, drunkenness, not controlling themselves, not living uh, circumspect and upright lives, just wasting uh, themselves away. And such people, verse 9 tells us, God appoints to wrath. The sons of the darkness will be cast into outer darkness. But if you're a son of the light, a son of the day, someone who has been born again by God's Spirit, you are to behave yourself in that way. It would be a contradiction for Christians who are in the light to live in the darkness. God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why would you go and crawl under a rock back into darkness again? Why would you go back to your former way of life and your sins? It's darkness. It's night time. Don't go there. Stay in the day and live in the day. And all the more as we see the great day of the Lord coming. There are three things that children of the day are to do. First of all, they are to be watchful. They are to keep watch as sentries, as watchmen. There is something to protect, something to keep safe, and we are to be alert and guarding. See, those who are sons of the day are expecting something. Of course, we're expecting the second coming of Christ. We're expecting his return And so we're to be alert and eagerly waiting for it. A watchman who falls asleep on duty isn't much use, is he? And so too for the Christian to fall asleep, to doze off, to become spiritually dull and no longer alert. It's not much use, is it? Think of Jonah as one example. The Lord commanded him to go to Nineveh. He turned and went the other direction and went in a ship completely the wrong way because he was running from God and running from his duty. He was sinning. He was sinning against his conscience. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And yet, he became spiritually dull, didn't he? So much so that he was able to sleep in the midst of a storm. That's how dull he was. As soon as he he felt the wind, if he had been conscious of his sin properly, 
and thinking correctly. Surely, as he felt the storm coming on, he should have been quick. Fear, have I caused this by my sin? I'm rebelling against God. I'm turning the wrong way. But he was hardened in a sense, and so he slept, spiritually dull rather than awake. It's to our hurt to sleep on duty. Think about the pilgrim's progress. Think of how Christian has to climb the hill of difficulty. And he falls asleep, doesn't he? Um, and, and when he wakes up, he, he, he rushes on, but he finds out he's left his scroll behind. He's lost his scroll. That which gives him uh, comfort and assurance. He's lost it. He's no good without it. And he has to return. Go all the way back down to the bench that he lay on to find it again. You see, his sleep when he should have been awake cost him. His spiritual dullness and negligence costs him. We must be alert and aware and watchful. Jesus told his disciples in the garden, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. It's interesting, isn't it? He wasn't simply speaking to the disciples. He wasn't just saying to them, you need to watch out for Judas, who's coming to betray me. You need to watch out because this is my time. And keep a guard over me. He's not saying that at all. But he's saying, watch lest you fall into temptation. Pray lest you succumb to temptation. And so what he said to his disciples applies to us today just as much as to them. Watch and pray lest you and I fall into temptation. There are many evils all around us. There are many things to distract us and and take us off the road of righteousness. But we need to be watchful and prayerful. Isn't it true that temptation can be so subtle? You know that, don't you? It's not always a big temptation that comes blatant and obvious with neon lights so that you're aware this is a temptation. It's subtle. It comes by degrees, little by little, so that when you succumb to the little temptation, you're prepared to succumb to a bigger temptation, step by step by step, until you commit bigger sins. That's how how it grows. But we're to be watchful against all the devil's schemes. Friends, we are not living in a time of peace. We are living in the time of war. And we are to be watchmen on duty. Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. The children of the light keep watch. But not only that, They also are sober. We see this in verse 6. Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Now of course here in the the context, he compares sobriety with drunkenness. And that's one form of being sober. But it's not the only form. There are other ways in which we uh, we, we can be excessive or immoderate. In particular things. To eat too much is gluttony. Just as to drink too much leads to drunkenness. But it's more than that, isn't it? We can, we can imbibe too much of anything. We, we can take in too much of the culture around us. So that we become worldly. We have to be careful lest we're too concerned for the things of earth. 
I'm not concerned enough for the things of heaven. This all comes under this category of being sober. Be serious as Christians. If we are soldiers, be serious soldiers. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4 reminds us that no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Of course, the sober Christian isn't someone simply who never laughs or never smiles. That's not what we're called to do. We can enjoy God's good gifts. There's a time to laugh, just as there's a time to cry. There's a time for humour. And there's a time to enjoy many good gifts in this world. But we're to be always careful lest we become excessive in these things. Because when we're excessive in all these things, our spiritual life starts to become dull. No longer are we as alert to the dangers round about us. When we, when we imbibe too much of these things, well then the dangers of the world come in among us. And so Paul says here, not only let us watch, but let us be sober. The watchman doesn't spend his time joking around. He doesn't spend his time just enjoying his life. No, he's always got this goal in mind. I need to be alert and be keeping my eyes open, lest I be taken by surprise by the enemy. So watch, be sober, but then thirdly, put on your armour. It's not a time for peace. Christ did not bring, come to the earth to bring peace, but to bring a sword. We fight, we fight against sin, against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil. We're to fight a good fight. Christianity is not a passive religion. It's not something simply for one day of the week and that's it. Do your duty by coming to church and then go and live your life as you want to live it. We need armour because we're living in a war zone. And particularly here two parts of the armour of God are in mind. There's a breastplate, verse 8, the breastplate of faith and love. And there's the helmet of the hope of salvation. If we were to bring it in to our modern views, uh, modern days, we maybe think of instead of a breastplate, a bulletproof vest or something like that. Something to protect our chest and particularly our heart. And a helmet to protect our head. It's interesting here that Paul uses the three virtues, the three great virtues mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13. Look at it, verse 8 there, you see the breastplate of faith and love and hope. These three remain, faith, hope and love. The greatest of these is love. It's also interesting that back in chapter 1 and verse 3, he also mentions these three things. Right in his introduction to this epistle. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. He already knew that they had faith, hope and love. But he's telling them put these on. Put them on again. Keep putting them on. Day by day have on that breastplate of faith and love and that helmet 
of the hope of salvation. Think first of all of that breastplate of faith and love. Um, Think of Galatians 5 and verse 6 where it talks about faith working through love. It makes a connection between these two. Faith and love need to have an object. You have to have faith in someone and love for someone. So it is that this breastplate of faith and love is looking to the Lord himself. Faith in God, faith in Christ. Love for God, love for Christ. Faith believes that God is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith believes there's a world to come and that this life is not all that there is and therefore we're to live circumspectly. Faith trusts in God's promises. Faith clings to him for every uh, grace and mercy that we need. Faith looks to his promises. You see, that's how faith defends us, because it looks to God. We are inadequate and insufficient to defend ourselves. But it's not just faith, it's also love. Love for God and love for the things of God. You know yourself that if your heart is lukewarm, it's not a great guard against backsliding and apostasy. The heart grows cold. It's not going to keep us particularly close to the Lord. But a heart that loves Him, a heart that is on fire and in flames, it's such ardour for God, will resist temptation. Because what the Song of Solomon say, many waters cannot quench love. So this breastplate of faith, looking to the promises, looking to God, looking to these realities, and love, ardour, zeal for God. But then also we have a helmet to put on. The hope of salvation. To protect the head. Hope of course looks to the future doesn't it? Hope is always expectant. It's always looking to what's to be finally done. The full salvation which comes at the second coming of Christ. And such hope which does not disappoint, spurs us on day by day. Hope seeks assurance and comfort in order to sustain us now. Because hope understands that the Christian life is difficult. Hope and endurance must go together. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And so hope has to help us endure Uh, through that long run, that long pilgrimage that there is ahead. And so we need faith, we need hope, and we need love. This is the way to prepare. Be watchful, be sober, but put on faith, hope, and love. It's similar to what Paul says in Romans 13. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. See, that's how we're to live. We know for certain that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. 
We know that he will return. He will descend with a loud voice, an authoritative voice. There'll be the sound of the archangel. There'll be the trumpet. These things will happen. The dead shall be raised. But are we living expectantly? Are we living in a way that is preparing ourselves for that day? Are we watchful? Are we sober? And are we wearing the armour of light? The question for you and for me is, are we ready for Christ's second coming? If we can't know the date, if we don't know when it will be, are we prepared? And are we preparing ourselves today? But notice also, just very briefly, in verse 11, very similar to the thought we had this morning. Verse 11 says, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Very similar to the last verse of chapter 4. Therefore comfort one another with these words. What we thought about this morning was a great and a comforting doctrine to think of the resurrection of the dead. We shall be raised and we shall always be with the Lord. This doctrine tonight calls us to duty. It calls us to fight. It calls us to watch. And here in verse 11 we're told not just to comfort each other with these words of the second coming of Christ. But comfort and edify one another. That that, that word edify is related to the building of a house. To build up one another. Just the same way as you would build a house. We know that when you're building. If you go down. Uh, is it still Percival Road? And you watch the building that's going on. It's step by step. Brick upon brick. And, and it's rising up. It, there's an aim. There's a, a plan for the finished product. But it takes time. And so it is for you and for me. We are to be prepared. For the second coming of Christ. But we need to be built up day by day, strengthened in his grace, brick upon brick. And we all have a duty in this. Just the same way as I said this morning, it's not for the ministers alone to preach these things. It's not the minister's job alone to edify the people of God so that they're doing their duties in order to be prepared for the second coming of Christ. But you, as the sons of light, are to edify one another. That is why we should be in fellowship with one another. That's one of the difficulties. I've mentioned this time and time again. The the difficulties with the various restrictions that we've had. We we recognize why. But it's affected our fellowship. And we are the worse off for it. Because we're not edifying one another. We're not being built up in the same way. Yes, you've had the preaching of God's word. The primary means of grace. But there's not been the same building up in fellowship where we speak to one another and counsel one another and encourage one another. And friends, when we recognize that and when we see here our duty, not just to yourself, for your own sanctification, but your duty to one another, surely this is something that we must take seriously to promote the growth of the Church of Christ. May God grant us grace. Amen. Let's stand to pray. Our Lord and our God.
we reflect upon this coming of Christ, this sudden appearance of our Saviour coming back to this world, how we long for it to come and to come quickly. Lord our God, we pray that we would be found ready if we are still alive at his appearance. We pray that the Son of Man would find faith on earth. Help us to live for eternity and not just to live for the things in the here and now. Help us, O Lord, to be watchful and sober and wearing the armour of light. O Lord our God, there are so many temptations all around us and so much evil in our day. Many people are believing they are in peace and security, not knowing the sudden destruction that will come upon them. We pray that we might be ready. O Lord, that we might be preparing ourselves and helping to prepare one another. O Lord, our God, we ask that you would bless us, bless us richly, and do so for your own glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing in closing from Psalm 96. Psalm 96 and verses 9 to the end. For believers to think of the prospect of Christ's return, there's a, 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 a it should provoke in us a worshipful heart. And here the idea is that the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that there is in all of creation is to be glad and to rejoice. Why? Because it tells us in verse 13, before the Lord, because he comes to judge the earth, comes he, he'll judge the world with righteousness, the people faithfully. What a prospect to look forward to and what a thing to rejoice in this evening. We'll sing uh, verses 9 to the end of Psalm 96. Let's stand to sing.